quoted last week in the ministry of Jesus that in Mark chapter 2 through 3, there's five consecutive stories in which Jesus has conflict with religious leaders. And we're going to look at two more of those stories today. I'm skipping over two little passages because I actually talked on a lot of this in Matthew chapter 9 just a couple of months ago. So I didn't want to rehash all of it, but there's a couple of salient points that I did want to touch on and uh, talk about today that really tie in, even though I talked about the first one a little bit a couple of months ago. But Mark chapter, we're going to start actually in Mark chapter 2 at verse 23, and then we'll finish up in uh, Mark 3, first six verses. So if you would follow along. It says, on the Sabbath, that's a key word. We're going to see it twice. And uh, Jesus is talking about the place of the Sabbath. For then that would have been Saturday when they met to worship God in the synagogues. It says, now on the Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples begin to make their way picking <coughs> excuse me, some, uh, some heads of grain. Now remember these people, they, they've already been in the gospel of Mark a number of times and they're throughout the gospels. These are really the adversaries of Jesus who ended up having him killed. It says the Pharisees said to Jesus, look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They're picking grain and All that. Well, Jesus said to them, have you never read? That's a key point because Jesus sends them back to the scriptures and he's going to kind of share with them a story from the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 21. And he says, have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and he was in hungry? How they entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and they ate of the sacred bread, which was not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And also gave some to his companions, the guys who were with him. Then Jesus told them the Sabbath, and this is key, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, Deuteronomy 23 tells us that according to Levitical law in the Old Testament, it was legal to pluck corn or grain or whatever while traveling alongside or through fields. That, you know, that was fine. If you're hungry and you need some sustenance, go ahead and pick up. But here the Pharisees, they have no problem with what Jesus and his disciples did. They're having a problem with when he did it. See, the Pharisees, they were so intent, the scribes, these religious leaders, they were so intent on keeping the Sabbath regulations. For us, you know, we go, oh, what's the big deal? I mean, these guys, you know, they're just a little hungry. Their entourage needs to grab a little roadside goodie. You know, it'd be like us stopping and picking a few berries. But you have to understand in that culture, in that time, in that system, it really was a lot about rules, and for them, this was a big one. You just don't break this by working on the Sabbath. And we would go, are you kidding me? That's working on the Sabbath? Yeah, for them, they considered that. Now, you have to understand, remember, Jesus, or God revealed to Moses in the fourth commandment. He said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But what the rabbis did back in that time, over time, the teachers of the day, they begin to add all of these regulations to help them understand what it meant to keep the Sabbath day holy. You could do this, you couldn't do that. And so this becomes a big deal. And they interpret it in so many different ways and they had all these strict rules and strict guidelines of what that would look like. 
Now notice though what Jesus says to them in verse 25. He says, have you not read? See, Jesus didn't argue with these guys philosophically. He pointed them back to the scriptures where the truth is found. And he asked them, hey, have you you read the story about David? Remember when David was going and and, uh, he was walking and his men and him were hungry and they walked into into this temple and... um, they didn't have anything to eat. They needed something. And the priest says to him, well, you know, we've got this consecrated bread that's set apart for the priest and the only ones that can eat it are the priests. You remember that story? And he says, you remember what happened? The priest says to David, David, are you guys holy? Are you set apart to God? And David said, yeah, yeah, we're, we're set apart. We're doing this, we're doing that. And we just, and he says, okay. So what does he do? He shares the holy consecrated bread that was only set aside for the priests with him. And Jesus is really taking them back to the word. And he's drawing attention to this simple truth. That the needs of people are much greater than religious traditions and regulations. And I love this because Jesus says to them, have you never read? Ha, 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 ha. Because see, the Pharisees, they were the ones that knew everything of the Old Testament. They could tell you how many letters were in the New Testament. They were thoroughly immersed in the Old Testament scriptures. No doubt that they knew what David did. And I think there's a key point there, uh, even that, that these guys, they would repeatedly read the scriptures, but they missed the very essence of what they were about. See, they may have reasoned at that time, well, when Jesus asked this question, they might have said something like, well, yeah, okay, Jesus, listen, we understand that story, but remember, David was an anointed, chosen king of God. And see, because of how they saw the scriptures, they, they didn't understand that standing right before them was the anointed king of God. And see, what's amazing is, is because Jesus deals with the Jews in John chapter 5. And later in that chapter, Jesus says these very powerful and poignant words to the people there. He says in 38, 39, and 40, he says, you are searching the scriptures. You are looking at them closely. You are dissecting them daily. But here's the problem. They speak of me, but you're not getting it. And he begins to challenge this religious, this, this, this lack of orientation toward Jesus and that all of their rules and everything had become more important. You read it repeatedly, you know it thoroughly, but guess what? You're missing me completely. Oh, loved ones, isn't like the Pharisees that we can be guilty of reading the word over and over and know what it says but miss the focus and the heart and the life of Jesus. And instead of allowing the, the, the sword of God's spirit, the sword of the word, as Ephesians 6 calls it, that we begin to use it as a sword to slash and gash people and causes instead of allowing it to be a surgical tool on our own heart that does work on the inside as well as allowing it to work on other people instead of slashing and gashing them with it. And we begin to simply miss Jesus because we want to use it for our own means. So Jesus is challenging them and their understanding of what the Sabbath was all about. 
and he makes that key statement. Listen, it's, you weren't made for it. It was made for you. We'll get back to that. But he comes to this second story now in Mark chapter 3. Now, when Jesus, he entered the synagogue again, so it's another Sabbath day, and a man was there who had a paralyzed, some of your translations say a withered hand, but a paralyzed hand. In order to accuse him, they, who, we'll see, it's again the Pharisees, the, uh, another group called the Herodians, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Now, he's already done this a couple of times. He told the man uh, with the paralyzed hand, stand before us. And then Jesus said to him, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill it? Now see, now he's going face to face, mano on mano with these Pharisees. Now it's not just kind of a subtle thing. Now it's like it's in your face. But they were silent. And the idea there in the actual uh, Greek Language, it's like, see, by now, we're only in the third chapter of the Gospel of Mark, but Jesus has confronted them so many times, they're finally learning, you know what, we're just going to keep our mouths shut, because anything we say, Jesus has a way of spinning it and turning it back on us, and literally in the verbiage there, they're saying that they just kept quiet and kept being quiet and kept being quiet. So after looking around to them, and notice how Jesus is, he's looking around, and one in one sense, it says he's angry. And then in another sense, it says there's sorrow. And at the, why? Because at the hardness of their hearts. And he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and his hand was restored immediately. It was restored. And immediately, the Pharisees and the Herodians started plotting against him, how they might destroy him. So let's look at this man with a paralyzed hand, this man that's suffering paralysis. Luke is a doctor, and he records in, in Luke chapter 6 the same story, but he gives a little bit more medical detail to it. Remember, he's a doctor. Mark is, a, is, is, is following Peter, probably writing what Peter's saying, and his whole focus is, is immediately get it done. Forget the details. Let's just keep moving. So Luke records this story, and he says about this guy, he says, it's his right hand that is withered, paralyzed, and no longer useful. So this brings another issue to the table, if you understand this culture. What's taking place here is now this man can't use this hand. It's probably here. He says he's got to stretch forward, so it's probably back, kind of for comfort, held against his body. But the problem is, is what has he got to use now? He's got to use his left hand. You have to understand in this culture, the left hand was considered unclean. You shouldn't use it for anything because you do unclean things with it. I had an understanding of this with my friend, uh, a pastor friend of mine, Dan Reason, who traveled in the Middle East and ministered in the Middle East for a while. And he said what he would do is they would minister. And then all of these people that were at the meetings would come up to him and they would... Um, you know, they'd gather around, and so trying to be friendly and gracious and loving it might have been hard to totally communicate with the language. So they, he would just stick out both hands and start talking to them. I mean, not talking to them, but reaching for them to shake their hands. And every time he'd shake out, uh, he'd put out his left hand, they'd go like this. <laughs> and, he's, and he's trying to get it back out there, and he's going, what's going on? You know, he's trying to figure it out. And finally they said, oh, no, 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 don't put your left hand out to anybody. It's unclean. We do unclean things with our left hand. 
And so I get the picture here. So this man, he can't use his right hand and now because of his left hand. See, in the Bible, the, the right hand is always talked about the place of authority that God with his outstretched right hand will, will empower us. You never hear anything about the left hand because it's in the culture considered unclean. So here's this man. He can't use his right hand and his left hand brings rejection to him. One church historian noted um, uh, that there's great evidence that this man was probably a stonemason. The language uh, is that this infirmity came at a point in his life where it would have definitely affected his, his income level, his ability to work. It, he wasn't born with it, but it affected his life later in life. So he's unable to, to perform and make income with his right hand but his left hand causes him to experience great rejection. So the man's in this major, major predicament. And I, and I thought, you know, don't, aren't there parts of our lives today, loved ones, where we suffer paralysis? Where we're withered over in some ways with fear? We have these difficult issues going on in our life that causes maybe sometimes rejection. See, Jesus is always drawn to those people. Isn't it interesting that as soon as Jesus goes in there, what's the first thing he does? He sees this man with a withered hand who's incapacitated, who is experiencing rejection from the people around him. The people are saying, we really don't want you around. What does Jesus do? He goes over to him and he begins to minister. Jesus always goes to those in need. And that's why even as I prayed earlier, loved ones, never forget that if you're here and you have need, there's, the, there's this probability that if you'll just be open to and responsive, that this Jesus is coming and he's gonna crowd you a little bit to meet your need, to be with you, to somehow, if you're open to him, you can respond to him. Because Jesus is always drawn to need. Now notice these other men. They were legalists. They were religious men. So you know you gotta understand that the stories about this Jesus, this man from Galilee who's working miracles, he's teaching with authority, he's attracting this huge following. The religious leadership called the Jewish Sanhedrin, they're growing concern down in Jerusalem about the popularity that Jesus is now accumulating. It's beginning to spread throughout the whole region. It's gathering attention. So what do they do? They send a delegation of scribes and Pharisees to go check them out. Now, the scribes and Pharisees, remember, they're the ones that are devoted to the law, keeping it, studying it, adding to it, making sure that it's followed by the most minute detail. So they're closely observing. They're watching Jesus right now. And when it says here that they were watching him closely, the verbiage there indicates that there's almost this malicious sense of lying in wait. They want to trap this person. They want to trap Jesus. They've been hearing about him. They've been watching him. They're jealous. They don't like his claims. So what are they going to do? They're going to trap him in what he's doing. Now you've got to think about this. These guys, they probably know about this guy with the withered hand. They probably know because, you know, he's hurting. And he probably goes to the synagogue every week. So they go, ah, let's go to the synagogue. Let's go see. Well, you, we know Jesus. If he goes there, he's going to heal him. Isn't that something? 
A lot of times, the enemies of Jesus know him better than we do. The enemies of Jesus, in, in, in their own way, believe in what he can do even more than sometimes we do. So they say, well, let's go to the synagogue. That's where we'll track him down. That's where we'll see him work. And so that's what they do. So he, they go there on this synagogue, and, and they're watching him closely. See, according to rabbinic tradition, you could not, a rabbinic statement, you could not heal on the Sabbath. A doctor couldn't work on a person on the Sabbath unless literally they were dying. And this guy's not dying. He's just got a withered hand. So if Jesus heals him, they're ready to accuse him now as a Sabbath violator. Now, you got to know this about this group that we're being introduced to today, this group called the Herodians. They were not religious at all, but they were a political sect who followed and supported um, the the, the family of Herod. They were devoted to the wicked family of Herod, Herod. So they had absolutely no affinity with the Pharisees. As a matter of fact, they were probably opposed. These two groups would have been like pro-life and, and, and pro-abortion. They would have, they, they would have been oil and, and water coming together because, see, the Pharisees hated foreign, domi- uh, foreign domination and the Roman rulership. But that's what the Herodians were. They were basically representatives of Rome. But isn't it interesting how a common enemy can bring people into strange coalitions? And so here we have these two bedfellows coming together, opposite ends of the belief system, one political and one spiritual. And now they're coming together. So these men of these two groups, they come to this church on that day, oh, not to worship Jesus. No, 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 they don't come there to worship. They don't come to enter into communion. They don't come to share in fellowship and to be fruitful, but they come with cynical hearts. They come with fault-finding spirits. They're fixated on finding the flaws of the people around them. They're into sin sniffing, and they're gonna catch Jesus. I'm so glad Creekside isn't like that. No, I don't believe you are. It's amazing how I come here every week and I just look at you and I go, I'm just so thrilled and so privileged to be pastoring here. Because you know, most of you, I believe, are here because you want to know about Jesus. You want to become more like Jesus. And that's what we're here to do, loved ones. But see, for these guys, their spirit was totally focused on the negative things and fault finding instead of fruit producing. Now, you hear me say this, and I've had people kind of try and correct me. And, I, and I, when you hear me talk about religion, you know, for a lot of people, religion is a good thing. When I talk about religion, I, I'm really talking about legalism or, or a, a legalistic type of spirit. You understand? Religion in and of itself isn't necessarily bad. And that's where people go, come on, pastor, listen, I, I'm a religious person. Oh, okay, I understand that. That's good. When I talk about usually what we do here, it's about a relationship. Everything points to a relationship with Jesus. Because when you have a relationship with Jesus, it affects everything you do every day of the week, every moment of your life, or it should be moving you toward that. But religion is something people do. Do, 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 do. I go to church because I need to to fulfill a religious requirement. It's not like I go there and get a lot out of it, but I gotta go. I do, do, do because of my religion. No, it's like, you know, I could, I could do things for Trina because we're married 
And sometimes I probably do, but 99% of the time I do things for her because of the love relationship that we have experienced for 36 years. And see, that's the difference. I could do things out of obligation because I wear this ring, but I prefer to do it out of this loving relationship because she's such a gracious, wonderful person who loves and serves me and has given me her best. How can I do anything else but give her my best? And see, and that's really the difference between religion and relationship that I'm talking about. So I'm going to talk today when I use religion. I'm really talking about religion that is working to get to God as well as legalism. Those terms that I, I frequently interchange so you understand where I'm coming from. See, James 1.27 says this, pure religion is to look after widows, orphans, those in needs, and it's in the context of holding your tongue. So here, this legalism is an impure religion tainted by rules-making. There is a good religion, but it's all based in relationship. There is good doing, but you do it out of a motivation of love for Jesus and what he's done for you. See, religion lives by the letter of the law. But 2 Corinthians 3 tells us that when you live strictly by the letter of the law, it produces Death. He says, I want you to live by the spirit of the law, which will always produce life. See, legalism is always adding man's rules and lists to the Bible because we don't trust God to be able to take care of people and to lead them into righteousness and what God wants for them. So we begin to want to control and put people and keep people in their place. Let me give you just a a few big churchy ones. Music. There are people that believe that there's only one kind of music. There's a, there's a TV show. I kind of like watching it. It's when I flip through the channels, it's a Christian one. And this pastor down in the south in Louisiana believes there's only one kind of music, his kind of music, the kind that he records and sells. And, <laughs> and if you don't listen to that kind of gospel music, you're listening to devil music. Okay. That's, that's legalism. Because you're imposing on people and saying your way is right. Can I tell you about music in general, whether it's secular or spiritual? It's music. It is amoral unless they're dropping F-bombs and talking about, you know, all of these different uh, sexual acts or uh, body parts or it's just crude and rude. Okay, that's not amoral. That is immoral. Uh, But Frank Sinatra... The Beatles, a lot of groups, rock and roll, generally their music is amoral. I still listen to it. I still love it. I'm a product of the 70s. It helps me run faster, jump higher, (laughs) move quicker. And at this age, I've got to have something to help. But see, a legalistic person will say, you can't listen to anything but Christian music. And to that, I go, show me in the Bible. Okay? Uh, Dress. Dress up or dress down for church. I don't care. Wear hats or don't wear hats in church. I don't care. I'm just glad you're here. Okay? Now, wear a suit. Go ahead. That's great. But don't look down on somebody because they don't. 
I've told this story before. I love it. It's one of my favorite all times. I got about four or five all time favorites, but this is one of them. There was a wonderful, gracious, godly, loves Jesus gal. And one time, you know, and we had these, it was in the summer, like this hot day. And, and this gal came in and she was very pretty, very pretty, very pretty. And, um, and very, very pretty. And, uh, <laughs> and, and she was, and she was wearing a, a, a shorter type skirt. And, um, and, you know, and just, it was, it was a hot day. And, and, and she comes up to me at one point in the service, it was like in the break or after, I can't remember when, but she goes, Pastor, Pastor, did you see that gal over there? I go, yeah, I saw her. You can't miss her. And, uh, and it's really true. I mean, you, and, and hear me, I, I don't want to think I'm some kind of, you know, um, but you know, what'd you say? <laughs> Weirdo, yeah. Um, but now let's, can, can, can we just be honest? Do we all notice really handsome people and beautiful people? Okay, so when there's beauty, you notice it. It's not the first look, it's the second and the third look that gets you in trouble. So I noticed. Now, so she comes up and she goes, Pastor, did you see how short that dress is? And I said, I, I kind of did. I mean, I didn't stare, but I noticed. Yeah. What are you going to do about it? Well, what do you think I should do? Well, go talk to her. I'm not going to talk to her. <laughs> and, 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 and I started thinking. I said, okay, I'll tell you what. This is what we'll do. This is what we'll do. Starting next week. I'm not going to do it this week. But starting next week, let's do this. We will start measuring skirts. <laughs> but this is the deal. You've got to stand back at the door and do it with me. Oh, pastor, I can't do that. I says, well, I'm not going to do it either. <laughs> See what I'm saying? See, that's where you start getting legalistic. What can you wear? What can't you wear? Listen, should we have a little bit of uh, um, a, a modesty? Yeah. But, but, but what if somebody comes to this church and they don't, they've never grown up and understood modesty? I don't, I'm just glad they're here. Can, can, you, can you handle that? And if you're a man, it's your responsibility. See, what, you know what I think sometimes ladies, why they get that way? is because they're afraid their husband's going to notice somebody else that's beautiful. And, and, I, and I understand that. So men, we have a responsibility then to control our mind, our thought, and our eyes. Instead of blaming somebody that maybe is coming to Jesus and all of a sudden we start judging them because of the way they dress. We're not going to do that. That's legalism. Uh, how, how about this one? Kids in the sanctuary running around after service. Pastor, come on, get these kids settled down. Are you kidding me? This is a stinking sheep shed. Okay? That's what I call it. I call it a sanctuasium and I call it a sheep shed. Sheep sheds are not usually clean places. I want our kids to love being here. And, and, and now, <clears throat> I'm not necessarily talking about one who's, you know, knocking stuff over, but you know what I love? I love that our kids can run around in the building afterwards. And so, oh, Pastor, it's the Lord's house. No, no, it's really not. This is the Lord's house. This is a sheep shed that we happen to use to meet in. And I'm not saying let your kids go crazy, run wild, but a lot of churches, you know, it's like they walk into those doors and it's like, (laughs) and all of a sudden we're sucking on lemons. And listen, this should be a fun place where it is not full of religion and legalism, but it's celebration and life. Jesus said, suffer the children to come unto me. The disciples are going, oh man, we got meetings, Lord. 
And he's going, are you kidding me? Give me a couple of these kids. Let me just hold them while I'm talking. And, 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 but there's churches, and I'm not trying to be against them, but, but and I'm not trying, listen, please, I, holiness doesn't come because you keep this place quiet and clean and perfect. Holiness comes because of this temple and this church and what you bring to it. And wherever Jesus is, there should be running laughter, joy. And I want our kids to grow up with a sense of awe of our God, but also a sense of joy and that this place is fun and Jesus is here because we're here. Now, how about drinking? That pastor's telling you, you can't drink. The Bible says don't drink. Oh, really? What did Jesus do when he turned water into wine? Well, it wasn't fermented. I mean, he didn't have time to ferment. (laughs) Okay. So now show me that in the Bible. I think Paul said something to one of his mentors or one of his mentorees. He said, listen, you've got a little bit of problem over here with your tummy. Why don't you take a little bit of wine for, the, um, for your tummy? Because even today they talk about the medicinal uh, helps of oftentimes red wine. Now hear me. I'm not proposing that it's, I'm not being a proponent of it, but I'm not against drinking. As a matter of fact, I met with our uh, chilling and grilling, just so everybody knows, I'll get it out here. One of the things we do is we do. We say you can't drink at Creekside events. There's no alcohol at Creekside events. Why is that? Because we're, pro, we're prohibitive against it? Because we're prudish about it? No. It's because we're protective over our people. And we don't want people in going into a situation where there's alcohol being served. And I've seen that, I've heard it, where I've talked about it. And people start thinking, oh, I can be as free as these other Christians, even though I'm coming out of an addictive background. And hear me, no. No, 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 no. So we are not going to do something at a Creekside event or small group or activity that is necessarily going to potentially open the door for someone to fall. And then we have to kind of take some responsibility for that. And I hear people say this, well, you know, Pastor, uh, uh, you know, they should be strong enough to handle. Oh, maybe they should. I don't know. But Romans 14 says this, that in everything, love supersedes our freedom. Love supersedes the freedom that you and I have to do whatever. But see, legalism will come in and say, you can't do it. See, I'm not saying you can't drink. I'm not against it. I am not a te- I'm, not a, I'm, not, I'm not promoting teetotalerism. Some churches do. That's legalism. But we will give boundaries to where and when and how because of our love for everybody here. Does that make sense? You see the distinction? You know, uh, but a lot of pastors say, well, no, don't drink. None, none. No, the Bible says don't get drunk. Then say don't drink. Does that make sense to you? Okay. So the, the, those are really important things. So see here, the, 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 see the legalistic and religious people are deadly, deadly. What do these guys do? As soon as Jesus breaks their rules and regulations and man-made stuff, what do they do? They plot to kill him. See, that's what rigid rule-keeping people do. They focus on the task versus people. They they become pride-filled over what they do and don't do. They become unloving because they expect everybody else to do the same. They become judgmental and look down on everybody else because they forgot where they come from. 
Because religious, legalistic people, they, they play inside the lines. And they expect everybody else to do it. Now hear me. Did, did, did anybody ever grow up getting those little paint box sets, you know, where you get the picture, it's got numbers on it, and then you, like green is number three, and blue is number four, and number one is white, and you go to the white, and you, you paint there. Isn't that kind of cool? See, that's kind of how legalistic people are. They, they, they only can live life by the numbers inside the lines. There's no art and there's no heart behind anything that they do when it comes to their spiritual life. Now, some of you are thinking, well, P.T., are you saying anything goes? I mean, based on circumstances and feelings? Absolutely not. People believe that God's goodness and grace just kind of winks at sin and, and his commands that tell me not to live this way or not to do that thing. I mean, you know, Jesus just knows my heart. Yeah, he does, and he wants you to change it if you're sinning. I'm not talking about those things that we know. I love what somebody said. They said, any concept of grace in God that makes you feel more comfortable sinning is not biblical grace. God's grace never encourages to live in sin. Quite to the contrary, if you are experiencing Christ's grace, Titus 2, 11 and 12 says, it's the grace of God that teaches you to say no and to live in righteousness, not legalism. See, the Old Testament laws and the New Testament commands, they they were never meant to be burdens, but to lead every one of our lives into blessings. They're not for punishment, but they're for protection. That's why I do that thing with, with alcohol here. It's not to prohibit people. It's simply to protect people that may need some protection. 1 John 5, 3 says this, for this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. Why? Because his commands are not burdens. I love that. Jesus is saying right here, he says, you know what? If people die every day and if death and evil don't take a holiday, should goodness and life and healing cease on the Sabbath? Heavens, no. Jesus is saying to these guys, your rules and your regulations, they don't make sense, and they're not helping people. So Jesus sets the record straight. There's a scripture in Acts 20, verse 7, that you'd probably blow by and not even notice it, but we see a significant change that is stated about the church. The church is no longer meeting on the Sabbath on Saturday but now they're meeting on the first day of the week, Sunday, the seventh day. Why? Because see, under the old covenant, man had to work for six days before he got rest. Under the new covenant, what Jesus Jesus ushered in through his work and what he accomplished on the cross, man, now listen, gets to rest first. We see God's original intent concerning the Sabbath day. What does he do? He creates for six days, and then he rests on the Sabbath. And after the resurrection, there's this subtle shift that soon after, sometime, the church now has their Sabbath on the seventh day. So they start off with a day of rest instead of ending it. What does Jesus say in Mark 2, 27? The Sabbath was made for man, not man. For the Sabbath. Many of us are familiar with 
uh, the 90s movie Chariots of Fire, the true story of two Olympians at the Paris competition of 1924. The one that is well known, of course, is Eric Liddell, who was a Christ follower. And he refused to run on the Sabbath. Now listen, you can get into legalism here, but this was his conviction. See, it's not, if that's his conviction, that's fine. It becomes legalism when he says nobody should run on the Sabbath. Do you understand that? But he had the conviction that he shouldn't run on the Sabbath. And as a result, he lost a chance for a gold medal to run in the race that he was favored to win. It was literally that much of a conviction. Now, on one level, the movie is about taking a day of rest off uh, on the Sabbath, and that's kind of what the movie is about, but the movie adds another layer to it. And they bring in this guy, uh, they contrasted Eric Liddell with Harold Abrahams, because he was doing the same thing. He wanted to win a gold medal in the Olympics as well. But in the spirit of the event and competing, he makes this profound statement He says, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. Liddell, on the other hand, simply wanted to please God who brought him into existence and had already accepted him. That's why we know about this famous statement that he makes to his sister. God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. I love that. See, Harold Abrahams, he was weary even at rest, striving and working. And Liddell, when he was at rest, when he was running and exerting himself, why? Because he did it out of a love and a passion, knowing that Jesus had given that to him. See, too often, loved ones, we live our lives pursuing Jesus, but there's still this need underneath the surface to justify ourselves and our existence, and religion and legalism becomes the refuge that we find it in. That's been part of my problem in my life because I've always felt like I've had to, growing up with low affirmation, I've always felt like I've had to prove myself. And this whole thing about the Sabbath rest until the last few years, I have totally obliterated it in my life. Not honored it, not lived it, lived in sin over it because I always felt like I had to prove myself. And see, religion and legalism ultimately leads to death in your life, in your relationships around you. That's why you can make millions and, and do work forever, but ultimately you destroy relationships around you. Because we're always trying to get to and to prove ourselves before Jesus instead of just resting in him and receiving from him. Hear me. It's so dangerous. It's so dangerous to be good and religious. See, Jesus saves us and changes us to get better. But if we're not careful, we do, we get so much better, but in the process, we get so much worse. We get so good, we forget we're still sinners saved by grace that are still in need of the mercy of Jesus every day. It's so dangerous. Well, doesn't Jesus save us and forgive us from our sins and change us to become new people? Absolutely, we do change. But if we're not careful, we simply kind of do image management in areas of our lives. And what do we do? 
I used to be a pretty judgmental person. But I don't do that anymore. Now I just judge people who are judgmental. (laughs) You see how subtle we can exchange that for? You know, name your sin that Jesus has pretty much delivered you or brought you out of. And what do you do? (laughs) I'm not doing that anymore, but by gosh, it really bothers me when everybody else does. And you forget that that person is where you were in need of the life and love and grace and power of Jesus to touch him. The sin of legalism in a religious heart is when we look down on others' sin while excusing our own self-righteous attitudes instead of resting in what Jesus has done in us and what he can do in others. See, this is the problem of the Pharisees and it becomes the problem for you and me. The more knowledge you get doesn't make you smarter when it comes to spiritual life. Hear me. It makes you more responsible. What does it do? It makes you more responsible to become like Jesus. I was, listen, this is great stuff you can learn in church. I was uh, watching National Geographic Channel recently and they were showing this, this lynx cat and this little deer doe and how these two, what should have been enemies, started coming together and developed this really sweet little relationship. You know what the key was they said? is they, they have this thing with animals, they call it imprinting. And so if these animals at a young age come together and they grow up together, they can build relationship together. Even though they may be enemies or two predators, but they can be imprinted with one another. And as I was watching that, it was a sweet little thing, but I thought, that's what I need. I, I need to continually, daily be imprinted with Jesus. Because that's the only way that I can ever stay away from developing a religious and a legalistic heart toward me, toward you, toward people around me, is that I am consistently and constantly imprinted with Jesus. And God, loved ones, has given us this precious, delightful, delicious gift called the Sabbath. And instead of being religious and super holy, that we begin to see the Sabbath was made for us. I wonder if that isn't a day when when God says, you just need to slow down. You need to stop and remember me. You need to remember who I am. That I can help you accomplish in five or six days what you think you might need seven for. That's a day when you can remember the terrible price that that was paid for you to remove you from Satan's domain and to begin to bring you out of the bondages of sin. It's the day that you can remember that I have promised to bring you through some of the things that you're presently facing. It's the day that I want to accomplish things of love and grace and hope in your personal heart. And as you refocus on me and my grace and goodness towards you, guess what? That's when you'll begin to hear it. That's when your heart can begin to get tuned in to it. Never forget 
Jesus said on the cross, it wasn't a dying statement of, oh, I'm finished. It was almost a proclamation that literally, if he could have had his hands off the cross, it would have been like a runner at the line saying, it is finished. What's finished? All of the sin and then all of the work that you have to do and all the legalism you think you have to enter into, you can now just freely receive Jesus. 